Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 14, The Loss of Mirth. A couple of months ago, I thought I'd take a trip, starting in Bangalore in South India. I thought I would drive to the coast and then turn northwards, work my way up the coast, seeing friends and family in the weekends and doing work in the week. Went to the map of India that's on my wall and traced it out with my finger. I had an idea that I'd go all the way up to the the top of Karnataka. Karnataka is the, the state that Bangalore is in, one of the states of South India. And then I'd drive back to Bangalore in one day to drop the car off. And that looked like a reasonable plan on the map. After all, the distance between the top of Karnataka and Bangalore was only a few fingers. It couldn't be that far. So I committed myself, called up friends and family, arranged work. And just before I left on my trip, I found out the bad news. Karnataka, one of the states of India, on its own, is one and a half times the size of England. It's not even the biggest state, not by far. And I'd committed to driving all the way across its length, all in one day. But I'd committed myself, so I went. Had a wonderful time seeing friends, family, learnt a lot at work, and then the fateful day came. I got up at four in the morning, got in the car, and headed out. For ten hours straight, I didn't even set foot out of the car, and finally run out of petrol. And there were lots of exciting things, hitchhikers, encounters with police, and so forth. But not here to talk about that. Here to talk about that state that I went through, the one that was one and a half times the size of England, Karnataka. Over the last few episodes, we've been talking about how the different regions of India started to emerge at this point in history. They started to have their own individual languages and individual cultures. Well, this week, I thought we'd look at the story of the emergence of Karnataka, how it started to have its own language and culture, and even more than that, how it started to be the centre of empires. That's a pretty large and abstract concept, but we can make it concrete by looking at the lives of individual people wrapped up in this, normal folk like you and I. So I thought we'd tell the story of the emergence of Karnataka through the story of one individual person. Although, admittedly, he's not a normal person, he's a prince. And even for a prince, he's abnormal, because of what he achieved in his life. By the time he died, he had beaten the greatest emperor of India, Harsha, or the greatest emperor at that time anyway. By the time he had died, this prince had formed an empire of his own. Actually, he had formed two empires, and they were, remarkably, at peace with the rest of India. So this prince achieved a great deal, but he did it with an act of everyday heroism, the sort of thing that you or I might have the opportunity to do, though perhaps we wouldn't actually achieve it. What this prince did was he overcame the infighting, the bitterness in his family, and he placed himself entirely at the mercy of his brother. And that trust was critical to his success. Just before we get started on that story, Here's this week's caveat. Most of our sources here are inscriptions. And that means that there's more filling in, there's more guesswork than there have been in other episodes in this series. Because inscriptions have different names for the same person and you have to try and guess who's who. And inscriptions are normally more interested in who gave what land to who and why than they are in telling the story. So to cut a long caveat short... This episode, we're going to be more speculative than we have been in other episodes this series. I'll stick in almost all cases to speculation that historians working in India have made. In one case, I'm going to go beyond that, but I'll I'll mark it clearly. Right, caveats out the way. Ready? Let's go. One of the surprises of a long journey across Karnataka is that it's shockingly empty. Now, a lot of people think of India and imagine it packed full of people. And that's, of course, true of of the metropolitan cities of Delhi and Kolkata. 
And it's true to a lesser extent of the big states along the Ganga, West Bengal, Bihar. But it's not true of a lot of India. In fact, you can drive kilometres on the highway without seeing much sign of life. And Karnataka is a bit like that, or at least a lot of it is. It's empty of people. But not just empty of people, empty of geological features, empty of hills. Down towards the coast, there's this spine of hills. But inland, up on the plateau with the cool winds blowing, often you get nothing more than very gentle slopes. Maybe the horizon is broken by the occasional farmer's house or a line of trees. But often, there's nothing but fields. If you keep on driving, though, through the state of Karnataka, up on the plateau, every so often you'll, you'll see them. Small collections of hills. The hills themselves aren't very small. They're high, and the flat tops rise from the plateau as if someone's beneath the plateau pushing something up. Our story starts at the foot of one of these flat-topped hills, up in northern Karnataka. Actually, it's a particularly spectacular hill. It's cut through with a narrow gorge where, where a little stream runs. On top, goats roam over the dark earth, picking at the grass. And a short way to the north of where the river cuts through the hill, the hill folds in, as if the plateau floor below was a sea and the hills a, a, a cliff surrounding a bay. And in that bay is a large pool of water reflecting the sunset light. The arms of the hill kind of reach around it as if it's hugging the bay, cradling it. There, at the foot of that hill, is our prince. A prince who we're not going to name because he's not yet earned his name. This, that the place he's walking through right now, is his capital city, ruled by his family. But the prince is leaving. Probably he's running for his life. And to see why, we have to learn about his family. The prince's family had appeared just as Karnataka was emerging as a separate region. For most of its history, Karnataka had been ruled by foreign powers. For example, the Western Shatrappas, the Satavahanas, and all those guys from season two of this podcast. But around the period of season three, when the Gupta Empire rises in the north, Karnataka starts to have its own identity. Two great kingdoms arise which seem to be coming from within Karnataka. The Gangas, named for the river Ganges up in north India, and the Kadambas, who are named after a tree that's found all over India. These two kingdoms, the founding kingdoms of Karnataka in some sense, actually still looked to north India for quite a lot of things. They look to the north for religion. Take, for example, the tree kingdom, the Kadambas. They were Brahmins, actually. They weren't Kshatriyas, so they're not from the, the Varna that's used to running kingdoms. And they wanted to bring some of that Brahminical revival, some of the fresh Brahminical ideas that were going on up in North India. They wanted to bring them down to Karnataka. So they seem to have actually found Brahmin families from North India and paid for them to come and settle in their own lands. A direct physical connection with the ideas of North India. The two founding states of Karnataka looked to the north in other ways too. They looked to the north and they saw the Gupta Empire. They saw how you could have an empire in India still. And they saw also Gupta culture, the culture of classical Sanskrit, with the great poets Kalidasa and so forth. And they imitated it. They wanted classical Sanskrit, the height of it, the height of culture in their lands. The Gangas, one of those two kingdoms, also looked to the east and south to Tamil culture. But in other ways, these two founding kingdoms weren't looking to the north, or to the east, or to the south, or even to the west of the sea. Instead, they were looking to themselves, because now they were starting to develop their own script, their own language, a language that's still spoken today, Kannada. It was about this time that our prince's family arrived in Karnataka. Legend has it that they were from a yodja up in the north, 
And legend has it that a king from there had tried to conquer India. He'd done what so many northern kings and emperors did. He tried to take an expedition into South India to say that he'd conquered the whole of the land. So this king, on his digvijaya, on his conquest journey, took his pregnant wife with him. In battle, the king had died. His ministers smuggled the pregnant wife away to some local sage. The local sage adopted her as his own daughter, and soon a son was born, and the son was raised in the sage's household. When the son came of age, he went to a certain hill in the area, a hill that was kind of shaped like the hand of the gods, and he prayed for the restoration of his kingdom. And the son was listened to. He got what he asked for. He founded a dynasty. The dynasty was called the Chalukya dynasty. That was the name of the hill that he had climbed. Or so go the mythical stories about the Chalukya family. But the family had really arrived on the scene with the prince's own grandfather. He, in many senses, was the true founder of the dynasty. The previous heads of the family, they'd just been local kings, feudatories of some greater power. But his grandfather was a Maharaja, an independent king in his own right as well. And more than that, his grandfather became a model for all later emperors of Karnataka. As an inscription puts it, in a family that faced challenges head-on, he was the crown jewel. The prince's grandfather came to power somewhere north of Karnataka. Not independent, the kingdom he inherited was beneath some other king. But he soon overthrew his masters, and he led his people south until they found this hill with its arms around the pool. It's called Banami. And there, the prince's grandfather had this fort constructed up against the cliff edge. A fort that was invincible, he said, from both the top and the bottom. Although he turned out to be quite wrong about the invincibility part. The prince's grandfather also seems to have started construction of temples in the area. And there are some wonderful temples there. That's what these guys, the Cholokis, are known for. That great big lake that's in that bay of the cliffs. Against there, he seems to have built a small pavilion which served as a divine boat. The idea seems to have been that his soul would come there on his death, and the pavilion would sort of drift out over the waters as his soul made his way home. In many ways, the prince's grandfather was the ideal emperor. Actually, we can be more specific than that. He was the ideal emperor in three ways. First off, he was a good fighter. In fact, he was so good that he earned the name Pulakesin. Pulikasin is this mixture of Sanskrit and this new local language, Kannada. And it probably means one whose hair is tied in a knot. In this time in this region, and in fact for centuries afterwards, warriors tied their hair up in a knot to keep it out of the way during battle. It's a sign of readiness, a sign of brutality almost. So if you are American, say, think of it as a sort of man bun for jarheads. Pulakesin, the one whose hair is tied in a knot, seems to have carved out a, a space for his people there in Karnataka, beating back those two founding kingdoms. And there would have been other kingdoms too, all vying for power. This was a period when everyone thought that they could become the next great empire, or so it seemed. And kingdoms came from nowhere and disappeared to nowhere with equal quickness. In fact, the prince's grandfather fought so well that he drew these constant comparisons to the great conqueror of the Gupta emperors, Samudragupta, the man who had carved out the real shape of the Gupta empire and taken his army deep into South India. Well, King, the one whose hair is tied in a knot, was given the same epithets as Samudragupta was. The comparison was clear and explicit. But the prince's grandfather was not only a good fighter, he was also a good scholar. The Vedas, well, he knew all about them. The Code of Manu, 
well, test him on any article and he'd get it right. And he also knew about histories and he was in general a man of great learning. But most important of all, the king whose hair is tied in a knot was a devoted man, devoted to the gods. He performed all the most expensive, most costly sacrifices. The Brahmin priests in his country were constantly busy, gifts kept flowing their way. The king performed the costliest of all sacrifices, the horse sacrifice. A show of military power and of wealth and of devotion with no real parallel. And he seems to have done it properly too. His descendants remembered it for many generations afterwards. If our young prince felt any pride in his family, that was partly, maybe largely because of the many devotions of his grandfather. The king, whose hair was tied in a knot, became known as the Dharma Maharaja, the great king of virtue. So our young prince's grandfather was warrior, scholar and devotee. In fact, his grandfather had been so close to the ideal that kings were held to in those times that later emperors of Karnataka took his name. The grandfather's is a sort of Julius Caesar figure of Karnataka. Caesar. It's quite a lot for our young prince to live up to. But for a young prince, the trouble hadn't really begun. Not yet. The king whose hair was tied in a knot had a pretty typical family life, at least for a king of that time. He had a couple of wives, maybe more, a couple of sons from different wives, stepbrothers. So when old knot hair died, the older son was given the throne. He was our young prince's own father. And he continued the warring ways. That made sense in that time. Just to re-emphasise, this was a period when India was in flux. Up in North India, there were these scatterings of small kingdoms fighting with one another to become the next great empire, to follow in the footsteps of the Guptas. The same was happening down in Karnataka to the south. All of this hostility and this war, it was a threatening world for a newly formed kingdom, but it was also a world full of opportunity. Borders shifting and changing, power vacuums appearing and disappearing. And the new king, our young prince's father, set out to take full advantage of this. He waged war with a series of these smaller states. Now we could go through a list of all of the people he conquered, but it wouldn't be terribly interesting. Although actually there is one interesting name on the list, the Mauryas. The Mauryas were that great empire that we talked about in season one. But these... Mauryas were long-distant descendants of those guys. Now, they didn't have a huge empire at all. They were confined to the rivers and the hills of Goa, a small province on the east coast. Well, our young prince's father took them down, added them to the list of other small kingdoms with less well-known names that he had conquered. According to the inscriptions, the new king didn't stop there. He didn't stop with the small kingdoms nearby. He took his army on a long expedition up north. First, he went across India, cutting into Kalinga on the other coast, on the, on the eastern coast. And then he took his army north to the valley of the Ganges, into the heartland of North India, conquering the old great houses of India, even conquering Magadha itself and the city we've been following, Pataliputra. This invasion would be really quite remarkable. It is, though, maybe, just maybe possible. With all the chaos up in North India, kingdoms popping into existence and disappearing in less than a generation, maybe, just maybe, a, south, a southern invader could, could come in, conquer, and then disappear without leaving any trace. But... It seems a bit of a long shot. And adding to the cynicism is who is writing these inscriptions. These inscriptions talking about these conquests of the north. The inscriptions were not written by the king himself, not for the most part. He was always out on campaign. 
Instead, the inscriptions were written by his younger brother, who'd stayed back at the capital, capital, resting in that fort by the hill. Actually, as you study the inscriptions, you start to realise that it's the younger brother who's really running the kingdom. If there are grants made to Brahmins, well, they're not made by the king, but by the younger brother. When an image has to be installed in a temple, it's not the king who's installing it, it's the younger brother. And the buildings that start to come up around the new capital, they're probably built by the younger brother too. In fact, there's almost no inscriptional evidence at all of the king. He seems to have spent his entire kinghood, his entire rule, out in campaign, fighting elsewhere. Now the king, although he's not present, he's still in charge. This is not a coup. The chief minister still had to ask the king for permission. May I grant these villages to those people? It was just that the king trusted his little brother an awful lot. So it was quite natural that when the king was dying and his own sons were too young to take control of the kingdom, the king called his brother to his side. He said, look, you become king. Not, not a regent, you become full, full king. But once my sons are old enough, you, you resign, you retire and you hand the kingdom on to my sons. The younger brother took the offer. And so it was that our young prince's uncle was king. And he went about doing kingly stuff. He had a big project in the early years of his reign. He wanted to do an expedition to the north. Maybe he was inspired by his elder brother, wanting to be better than him. He wanted to plant a pillar of victory on the banks of the Ganga itself. And he started that expedition to the Ganga in a, in a way. There was this king with the, the name of Buddha who seems to have been initially part of the kingdom and he should have been serving the uncle. But he rebelled. He took his army, which was thick with elephants, and the young prince's uncle headed up north to conquer this elephant-thick army. And he roundly thrashed the traitor. He took his riches. So the uncle did start on his expedition north, but that was pretty much the end of it. It was dropped, and the matter doesn't seem to have been raised again. Maybe that's because the uncle realised that up in North India, there was a new power. Harsha was starting to, to get control up there, and an expedition seemed increasingly likely to run into the army of a great emperor. Or perhaps the uncle just got distracted by other matters. The uncle does seem to have been this oddly vain man, at least judging by his inscriptions. It's a hard thing to do, right? Inscriptions are always full of boasts about the king they are inscribed for. That's kind of the point of them. Maybe Ashoka the Great's inscriptions are an exception, but even they're not entirely different. You know, you get these inscriptions typically saying, the king dipped the horse's hooves into three seas, or that king wrote his name on the Himalayas, or the other king was the first one into space, or, well, okay, not the last one, but you get the general picture. Inscriptions are braggadocious. But there's something just a little bit off about the uncle's inscriptions. They go on just a little bit too long, further than usual. And they come across to Bonniers as a bit, well, a bit more childish than usual, like a sycophant's praise to this teenager who never quite grew up. So, for example, here's a list condensed to preserve your patience with praise for a man that you've never met. Oh, Uncle King. Well, obviously, they didn't call him uncle in the inscriptions. They called him things like Mangalesha, which is a name, but there are, are too many names in this episode already. So, oh, Uncle King. You are the receptacle of prosperity. That's fair enough. That just means lots of good things come to him, which they did with his brother going out and doing all the dangerous work of conquering and fighting and carving out an empire and him sitting in that beautiful bay in the mountains. But it gets worse. He was, according to the inscriptions, polite 
knowledgeable, generous, kind and civil. Polite and civil, that's good to know. He was as pleasant as a cluster of water lilies, the source of fear to enemies. The order of this is pretty normal. Valiant, brave, had lots of spies, truth-like. Wait, what was that about spies? Good at attacking enemies in the rear. Good at constructing forts. Profound as the ocean. He had the eyes of a bull, like a rutting elephant. No, like a lion. Manly, firm, bold. So pure of mind that he would laugh at the moonshine. The original text here says he would laugh at the autumn moonshine, but it still doesn't make any sense to me. He was desired by soldiers, because he could pay them. He liked mercenaries, apparently. He was desired by vultures, because he killed lots of people for them to eat. And he was constantly surrounded by young damsels. That last one about the young damsels, it's a little bit unusual. In fact, I can't remember specifically any other inscription which has it. Though I suppose similar stuff is there in some gun poetry. And just in case you're starting to think that any of these compliments are a little bit overblown, he is truthful. All of those brags and many, many more, so many more, appear in these inscriptions. And some of these inscriptions were written before the uncle was even king, when he was just the brother of the king, put in charge while the real king was away doing the real king work. Presumably all of this bragging was meant to come off as impressive. And presumably, it did come off as impressive to most of his ancient Indian audience, though it doesn't quite pull it off in my eyes. Imagine that you are our young prince, in the capital, by the side of that beautiful mountain-ringed pool. As you watch the sun go down, as you watch the warmth of the sky reflect in the waters below, start to think about your own life. Now you are 20 years old. You spent your entire life imagining, expecting that you're going to become king. After all, your father had insisted, had trusted his own brother, that he would make you king. But the brother, your own uncle, is clearly not going to keep his promise. You can see that now. So what can you do? Well, it wouldn't be a good idea to challenge your uncle. After all, your uncle has been in power for a long time now. He's been in power all of that time that you were growing up. And in fact, he was in power in a way before that, because whilst your father was king, it was your uncle who had made the decisions. Uncle who had been getting to know the administration, making friends, making connections. For decades, probably, your uncle has had the administration, the ministers in his pocket. And now, with his recent victories over the rebels, he had the army in his pocket too. Pretty soon, you're going to become an inconvenience to your uncle, an embarrassment. He might well try to kill you, if he's not already tried. The only sensible option is to run away. Find some safe ground to stand on and work out what you're going to do for the future. And run away is exactly what our young prince did. He fled to an old and famous kingdom, Barno is called, the name doesn't matter for this story. Back in the age of the three crown kings of Tamalakam, this kingdom had been a player. But like many once great kingdoms at this period, it had taken a fall. It was just trying to ride out the period of uncertainty. So you run away to the kingdom of Bana. But if you thought your uncle was going to leave you alone, you'd be wrong. There seemed to have been people around the kingdom, feudatory kings in the kingdom, who took your side. People probably who had fought alongside your father in the old days and still felt that they owed your father their loyalty. They wanted your father to have his last wish that you would take the throne. Your uncle summons the army and sets out to confront these loyalists. He heads towards the island of Revati. 
Historians have speculated that it was ruled by someone loyal to your father, against the rule of your uncle, and for you. And the island had this tremendous fortress on it that sounds quite formidable. The banners on its ramparts reflecting on the water beneath, flapping colours skipping across the waves. The uncle was not daunted. He had a, a sizable navy, and he arranged his boats to form a bridge and marched his army right over. He took the island. The ruler of the fort was killed in battle. One more supporter of that odious little prince gone. The uncle found his own much more faithful commander to take charge of the fort. And soon enough, the uncle came for the prince. Assembling the army of the prince's own kingdom, marching the army right into that small kingdom where the prince was hiding, bringing the prince himself to battle. Soon enough, they were facing off, the uncle on one side with his army behind him, and the prince on the other. We don't know who stood with the prince, what army he had, whether it was some patchwork of allies still loyal to his father, or whether it was the army of the small kingdom of Bana he had been hiding in. But there must have been some army with him, because a battle was fought. And, in what must have been a surprise to almost everyone, certainly to the uncle, the young prince won. His uncle was killed right there on the battlefield. Almost as soon as the battle was over, the young prince took what his father had put aside from him since he was a baby. The young prince was now a king. Perhaps around this time, he took the name of his grandfather. Polakeshi, one whose hair has been tied in a knot, the name of a warrior. But there was an awful lot of work to do. A young prince coming to power by something like a coup, that was not the sort of thing that led to stability. And in this period of history, kingdoms were often built on, on top of other kingdoms, with the large kingdoms being a relatively small central area owned directly by the royal family, surrounded by a, a, a large host of feudatory kings. Harsh's kingdom up in North India was like that. And so was Pulakeshi's kingdom. Pulakeshi quickly set about giving out land, villages to people in his kingdom, trying to keep his, his feudatory kings happy. But it wasn't enough. Almost immediately, two challenges rose up against him. We know their names, but we don't, we don't really know who they are. Some historians think that they were both allies of the killed uncle, perhaps even the uncle's own sons. They would have been presumably about Pulakeshi's age, and like him, they were probably expecting to have the kingdom passed on to them. But other historians think that these two challengers were just feudatory kings who got too big for their boots. One of them might have some connection with a small kingdom on the border of Karnataka, we just don't really know. Which probably means that, wherever these two challengers came from, they weren't terribly significant figures in their own time. Military adventurers, but not serious rivals. Not yet. Pulakeshi beat back both men's forces. One of them fled the land entirely, up past the northern extreme of Karnataka, into a different state. Of course, the states weren't clear back then. The other of the challengers gave himself up. He threw himself at Pulakeshi's mercy, and Pulakeshi granted him that mercy. But even though he'd faced off these two challengers, the kingdom was still starting to fragment. Parts of the kingdom which had been added under his father started to splinter away, and neighbouring kingdoms looked on with greedy eyes. But Pulakeshi dealt with both threats admirably. He went and he conquered the Gungas, down in, in the south of Karnataka. They were one of those founding kingdoms, really started to make Karnataka an independent region. The old Ganga king had died. And he had left two sons, a little bit like Pulakeshi's own grandfather. And a little bit like Pulakeshi's father and his brother, these two sons had betrayed one another, stepbrother against stepbrother. Down in the land of the Gungas, civil war loomed. What's worse, the great power in the region had chosen to become involved, the Palavas to the south. 
They sided with one of the two stepbrothers. So Pulukeshi sided with the other. He marched his army right into the Ganga kingdom and took it, so far as we can see, without any fight, supported by one of these brothers just about to lose their kingdom. Cunning stuff. Other kingdoms couldn't be won over so easily. The greatest kingdom of Karnataka had long been the tree kingdom, the Kadambas. Pulukeshi's grandfather, the one whose name he shared, had beaten them, but he hadn't defeated them. He'd only carved out a space for the new kingdom. Well, Pulukeshi, his grandson, was now back to finish the job. It said that the tree kingdom's capital city was a place of wonder. It was legendary in its wealth. It was supposed to have rivaled the city of the gods. The river was surrounded by a river, and in peacetime, the swans of the river played on the waves whipped up by the wind. Pulukeshi brought the end of peacetime. It's said that his army surrounded the city, making it seem like an island fortress ringed by a sea of soldiers. Pulukeshi's army struck again and again at its walls. Eventually, Pulukeshin got in, and the kingdom of the tree, the Kadambas, who'd been there at the founding of Karnataka, disappeared from history, never to return. Pulukeshi secured his kingdom, won his victories with the help of an ally. But in the circumstances, it must have seemed a rather surprising ally. Remember, his father had been utterly betrayed by his brother. And that betrayal had very almost ended Pulukeshi's own life. Pulukeshi should have been dead because his father trusted his brother. But now Pulukeshi chose to trust his own brother. And that was a surprisingly good thing to do because Pulukeshi's brother turned out to be brilliant at capturing forts. He just had that sort of mind. Somehow he knew just how to get inside a fort and take control. It didn't matter whether that fort was on land or on sea, or on land and looked like it was at sea. Pulukeshi's brother was a military siege genius, and Pulukeshi was going to keep his brother close, and that was going to be a very great benefit indeed. Pulukeshi started doing what all well-trained Indian kings did at that time, surround your kingdom by allies, weaker states who can protect you. They work as buffers. The trouble with this buffer state strategy is that it isn't exactly stable in a certain sense. For example, compare it to mutually assured destruction, MAD. MAD was this Cold War doctrine where... Everyone has enough nuclear weapons to kill everyone else, and everyone else knows that, so nobody launches any nuclear weapons. Now, mutually assured destruction is a terrible idea in many, many ways. But at least it has this virtue. It can be adopted by everyone. It has what game theorists call a Nash equilibrium. But the policy of surrounding your kingdom by allies, by buffer states doesn't have that equilibrium. It can't be adopted by everyone. I mean, for one thing, the buffer states can't do it because they're too small and weak, but that's not really a worry. Because they're so small, because they're so weak, they're not going to be causing much fuss on the broader political scene. But sooner or later, two great kingdoms are going to become close enough so that only one kingdom stands between them. And then if those two great kingdoms try and follow the buffer policy, they will both want control of one and the same small state. They'll both want it to be their buffer. That is exactly what happened. Two great kingdoms had appeared in India, quite suddenly over the past decades. In the north, harshest kingdom, where we've been spending most of this series. So the south, the central band of India, the Deccan Plateau, Pulakeshi's kingdom. And between them, was only a thin line of states. People in that thin line of states seemed to have been more concerned with Harsha to the north. He was at that time the greater threat. 
He had been moving his army east, west, up and down the Ganga, conquering everyone he met, or pretty nearly. The smaller kingdoms on his borders wanted to get out from under the thumb of this northern conqueror. And so they looked to the south, where they saw this new kingdom arising, a bit further away. Someone who had already overcome what must have seemed like impossible odds, beating an army much larger than his when he beat his uncle. So the buffer states already had an incentive to join Pulakeshi. And Pulakeshi seems to have had little trouble in getting them to join his side. He added to his kingdom states from the very north of the Deccan Plateau and beyond, right on the very borders of Harsha's kingdom. And Emperor Harsha, the most powerful man in India, did not take this well. As far as Harsha was concerned, Pulakeshi had started to make a move on land that was basically his. Pulakeshi was in his hood. Harsha sent out the word across northern India, into his many lands, to all of his allies. Harsha was known, even down south, as the king of many kings, the head of a huge host of armies. And Harsha searched amongst those armies. He found the greatest generals, and he took them into his army and gave them command. He pulled together a huge army from his many provinces, and he marched them, together with his feudatory kings and his allies, southward, to teach the newcomer some lessons. And lesson number one, do not under any circumstances mess with Harsha. Harsha's great army and Pulakeshi's army faced one another. The new lord of the north on one side with his feudatory kings, the new lord of the Deccan on the other side, his wily brother at his side. It's not exactly clear what made Pulakeshi and his family such good warriors. Maybe it was down to the personality, the tenacity of the rulers themselves. Now in a usual dynasty, you have one king who forms the empire, and the kings who come after him sort of consolidate the empire or just add small bits to it. That happened with the Guptas, for example. Samudra Gupta basically carves out most of the empire, and the emperors come after it, just maintain it. Happened to the Mauryas too, Chandragupta Maurya carving out a large chunk of the empire. But in Pulakeshi's family, the Chalukyas, there, for three generations, there seemed to have been nothing but conquerors. His grandfather, we already met him, he was compared to Samudragupta. But his father was not exactly a consolidator. His father was always out in campaign, far into North India. And his uncle wasn't lazy about it either. He was also a bit of a warrior. But Pulakeshi was perhaps the best warrior in a family of warriors. There might be another reason why Pulakeshi's army was so powerful, why his family had so many victories. They might have had a technological advantage. Now, here is the point where I'm going beyond the speculation of historians into my own even worse speculation. But really, I'm basing this thought in the original sources. The original sources say that the people in Pulakeshi's land had champions, thousands of them. And these champions would get drunk before every battle. Then they would pick up their spears and they'd all run together in a bunch, maybe just a little bit like a Greek phalanx. And each warrior, when they were drunk the sources say, could take down a hundred men. So maybe these two bits of technology, a bit of toddy and some good spear tactics, maybe they did the trick. I don't know. In any case, something was powering the lord of the Deccan's army because the great emperor of India, Harsha, was beaten. Or at least Harsha didn't win. The battlefield was covered in bloody grey mountains, the corpses of Harsha's elephants, slain. Harsha himself had survived, but he was driven back and he never returned. As Pulakeshi's inscription puts it, Harsha lost his mirth. As for Pulakeshi, he took control of all the land south of the Vinges, that mountain range that marks the edge of the plain of the Ganga. Those were the mountains where Harsha had once freely roamed, searching for his sister, 
Well, now they're in the hands of his enemy, an enemy he never again dared to face in battle. Harsha may well have presented this as a sort of stalemate rather than a defeat. After all, Pulakeshi hadn't exactly invaded Harsha's territory. But Pulakeshi and his people saw it differently. Pulakeshi had beaten back his most serious, formidable opponent. And Pulakeshi now went about calling himself the Supreme Lord. That name though, Supreme Lord, didn't quite fit Pulakeshi, not yet. Because there was more for Pulakeshi to do. In fact, he had not yet conquered even the whole of the Deccan Plateau, that strip across the centre of India. He definitely hadn't conquered the whole of India. Yeah, maybe he'd beaten his most formidable opponent, but there were other opponents out there, still with the power to crush him. So that name, Supreme Lord, didn't exactly fit yet. It was part of that overstatement that was so common amongst ancient Indian kings. But not for long, because Pulakesh and his brother would march again, and when he had finished, India would be split into three great empires. But that is a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week I thought we'd go on a short journey from that bay surrounded by the hills. Just go down to the river and then head upstream almost a day's walk. And there you'll find the village of Aiholi. Aiholi was one of the, the centres of culture for this dynasty from the Cholokias. Nowadays it's just a village, but the name is still fantastic. The story goes that what happened was Rama with an axe, one of the incarnations of Vishnu, came down and he said, Aiholi, there's the river. Look, the river. And that's how it got its name. In any case, this was a place where the Cholokias built temples and other monuments, and one of the temples was built by the court poet of the prince that we've been following, Pulakeshin. The temple is a Jain temple, but the court poet has inscribed up at the top the story of the family of Pulakeshin. And I thought we'd read today from that inscription, we're going to read just some sections about the characters we've met today. And it goes... Like this. His son was Pulakeshin, that's our young prince's grandfather, who though endowed with the moon's beauty, as though he was a favourite of fortune, became the bridegroom of Vatapipuri, whose path in the pursuit of the three objects of life the kings on earth even now are unable to follow. And bathed by whom with the water of the purificatory rite, when he performed the horse sacrifice, the earth beamed with brightness. His son was Kirtivarman, that's our young prince's father, the knight of doom to the Nullas, Moriyas and Kadumbas, whose mind, although his thoughts kept aloof from others' wives, was attracted by the fortune of his adversaries who, having secured the glory of victory by his valour in war, being a sent elephant of a king, of great strength, at once completely broke down the multitude of the broad Kadamba trees, the Kadambas. When his desire was bent on the domain of the Lord of the Gods, i.e. when he died, his younger brother, Mongolesha, became king, who by the sheets of dust of his army of horses, encamped on the shores of the eastern and western seas, stretched a canopy over the quarters who having dispelled the mass of darkness in the form of the elephants of the enemies, with hundreds of lamps in the form of swords having shining rays, obtained in the house in the form of the battlefield possession in marriage of the damsel in the form of the fortune of the Katatachuris. And again, when he was desirous of taking the island of Revati, 
His great army with many bright banners, which had ascended the ramparts, appeared as it was reflected in the water of the great sea like Varuna's forces, quickly came there at his word of command. When his elder brother's son, named Pulakeshin, that's our young prince, of a dignity like Nahusha's was coveted by the fortune, and finding his uncle to be jealous of his threat, he formed the resolution to wander abroad as an exile. That Mangalesha, whose great strength became on all sides reduced by the application of the powers of good counsel and energy gathered by Hulakeshin, abandoned, together with the effort to secure his kingdom for his own son, both his vast kingdom and his life. And that's it for this week. Now, this episode is about a month late. I don't usually put much of an apology or an excuse in the episodes, and that's because of some good advice that was given to me by great podcasters. After all, they said to me, people who don't normally listen to podcasts as they're released, so the apology, the excuse doesn't make much sense when they're listening to it. I've missed my deadline about four or five times over the last couple of years I've been doing this, Usually I just sit and, and feel terrible, feel like I've failed my family and, and so forth. But this time, it's a bit different. Partly because I missed the deadline especially badly, a month late. And partly because the excuse, although reasonably pathetic, is at least reasonably amusing too. What happened was this. I now live a, a long way from pretty much any library with the sort of books I'd need. So I was excited when one day a package arrived with a crucial book I needed for this episode. But as I picked up the package, it flopped over like a soggy banana. It was supposed to be a hardback book and it became so wet that it was just paste. Well, I dried it out. But as it dried, it picked up an awful lot of fungus. In fact, mould formed on every single page. So as I started to leaf through the book, when it was dry, I'd open up a new page and spores would fire up into the air, up into my nose, and I'd become ill. So I tried to read this book and I kept on becoming ill and I tried everything, wrapping a scarf around me, wearing a gas mask, but it just didn't work. Every time I read the book, I got ill. See the risk that I take just for a single episode, the pain I'm willing to put up with. Being a bumbling historian, it turns out, is a dangerous profession. Of course, I was being a stubborn idiot and I should have given up and done a different episode. Anyway, that combined with being in the villages of Chhattisgarh, where there wasn't enough internet, is just about my excuse. Next time, I'll be smarter. I hope that despite the lateness, you enjoyed the episode. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehill Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link in the description. We're back next week to find out what happens to our young prince and his brother. Until then, have a great week. Take care.